It's not just automakers who are worried about hacking. The military also has big concerns with cybersecurity. Coming up on AutoLine this week, we hear how private companies are working with the government to protect transportation of all types. Underwriting for the production of AutoLine this week has been provided by the Michigan chapter of NDIA. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. Want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week. You know, normally we talk about the global automotive industry. We're going to do that today. We're also going to be talking about the National Defense Industry Association and we're also going to be talking about cybersecurity and how it affects both the automotive industry and national defense. And I've got three terrific panelists joining me today, including Carl Heimer. He's the Senior Technical Advisor for Cybersecurity for Automotive and Defense for the state of Michigan. He also has his own private consulting firm called Heimer & Associates. Next up we have Jeffrey Massimilla. He's the Chief Product Cybersecurity Officer at General Motors. And we also have Supervisory Special Agent Tom Winterhalter. He's with the FBI's Cyber Division. Also he is with the Deputy Principal Liaison Officer to the NSA and with the U.S. Cyber Command at Fort Meade. And I want to thank all three of you from jo- for joining us here today. Thank you. Thank you. And what I love about this is we sort of have uh, talking cybersecurity with national and uh, defense from a national level, a corporate level, and a state level. So I think we've got this quite well rounded. Let's get going. And Jeff Massimilla, why don't I start with you? You're in charge of all cy- cybersecurity for products at General Motors. Right. So my first question to you and then to the panel is, how serious is the threat, cybersecurity threat, to automobiles? Yeah, so th- thank you. Thank you for having me today, by the way. Um, I think the threat is very serious, right? With all connected systems, there's a threat of cybersecurity. So in the automotive space, you know, today we're facing researchers and entrepreneurs looking at different solutions that they might have to kind of help the auto industry. but. The threat is real. I mean, we have a connected ecosystem that has wireless interfaces that connect to safety critical systems. And when you have that mix of uh, interactions in any system, you have a threat. Carl, you work with the state of Michigan. It's the home to the uh, American auto industry or a good chunk of it. How do you see the, uh, the threat, not just to cars themselves, but to the automotive industry? So I do agree with Jeff that the threat is real. Uh, we don't see the threat manifest yet, so we have some physical attacks, denial of service attacks uh, with some locking mechanisms, etc. in Europe. Haven't seen that much here. What we have, however, is a sort of race condition. So industry is doing amazing things to protect their cars and also to cooperate and share data amongst themselves. Cybersecurity is an evolving thing. It's never static. And so as long as the industry and the government is ahead of the decision cycle of uh, attackers, we will be you know, relatively safe. Very good. And Tom, from the FBI standpoint, I know that you've been involved in a lot of cybersecurity attacks on, on the automotive industry. What's your assessment of how serious the threat is? We, we in the FBI look at it in a couple different ways. We completely agree with everything that's been said by the panel. It's a very real threat. It, it's serious. It's something we need to be concerned with. But we look at it in two different ways. We're looking at one, whether it's nation state, criminal, economic espionage, somebody trying to, you know, collect that information, take that intellectual property that's being designed and developed that we're all using, utilizing in our vehicles. But we're also starting to see as far as that, as that ecosystem continues to evolve, the, the criminal actor, the nation state adversaries are looking for ways to target it and, and impact it. And Jeff, we've seen attacks 
being highlighted in the media, but it was largely media people uh, launching attacks on cars. What kind of attacks are you seeing out there, or are you? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, again, we're seeing a lot of um, interactions with researchers. So researchers, I mean, and we, and we don't like to call those attacks. I mean, we embrace the work of researchers in our, in our world. So, I mean, we can demonstrate that through our coordinated disclosure program and things that we have out there that I'm sure we'll touch on here later. But, um, you know, researchers are looking at systems or looking at ways of getting into systems. They could be back office systems, cars themselves. Um, and they're, they're, they're exposing those, whether it's for notoriety or maybe they want a job or maybe they want to get paid for their research, right? From an attack perspective, you know, we aren't seeing nation state attacks in the automotive ecosystem. And we may be seeing them from an IP perspective in, in certain cases. Um, but the attacks that we're seeing are the things that I think, you know, Carl alluded to here. Um, you know, there's some things going on from a, a vehicle access, a theft perspective. Um, that's starting to see, you know, getting, getting a little bit more um, notoriety in, in Europe, in Eastern Europe especially. Um, but but nothing, nothing too extreme at this point. So it's a real chance for the industry to get out in front of this, right? And I think we, you, you mentioned that very well. We can get out in front of this and do the right things as a government and, uh, you know, private sector together, we can really thwart these attacks before they start. Carl, are we not seeing the kinds of attacks that you are seeing in Europe uh, because we've got better cars or we don't have as many bad guys? Any question that relies on the innate goodness of people, I, I, I tend to shy away from. So, uh, <laughs> so I would say there's a couple things uh, going on. One is we have a better system of laws currently, and uh, we'll move to prosecution. Two is the industry here. Uh, I mean, so Jeff's uh, actually led the responsible disclosure program at uh, GM and was the first automaker to sort of embrace not only researchers, but also give them credit uh, for their research and, and uh, make announcements. And so what he's done is taken a lot of people that would otherwise uh, be attacking systems and publishing it on you know, uh, um, underground websites and brought them into his fold. These folks are curious, they're creative, they want to do research, they want to share the information, and if you give them a welcome mat, they'll come to that more than, uh, you know, go to, go to the uh, dark side or underweb. Very interesting. Tom, you touched on a little bit of the kind of attacks you're uh, seeing. Mainly stealing intellectual property, or does it go beyond that? We're seeing the, the kind of the evolution as that environment and as this ecosystem continues to evolve and, and and develop and become more and more commonplace in the vehicles and in that environment, I think you're going to see a significant uptick as far as in what adversaries or criminal actors want to do. But right now, our, our, the biggest thing that we see, we tend to see, is usually the targeting of the intellectual property itself and somebody trying to get you know, all that ingenuity for free. Why do you think we're going to see an increase in this? Because that technology is so prevalent and, and so commonplace that everybody's trying to catch up, everybody's trying to put the latest and greatest security system, they're trying to get involved in the marketplace, they're trying to compete with GM, Ford, Chrysler, with the automotive industry as a whole, or they're just trying to get involved to become a supplier to then lead them to get other pieces of, of whatever that intellectual piece that they're looking for. Well, and it seems like you know every industry that faces cybersecurity challenges always starts with the researcher, right, and the entrepreneur, and then goes into the more bad actors, the criminalists, and the nation states. So I think it's just going to be a natural transition anyway. Again, I think it's a great opportunity for the industry to get out in front of this as a whole, um, but at the same time, it's going to transition those those bad actors because every industry sees that. Yeah, and, and even when you look in the financial sector and you start seeing the evolution of technology and convenience being baked into the the, the financial system, we started seeing an uptick in targeting of people trying to get the free money. So it's that same thing as we start baking that technology into our vehicle systems, whether it's you know, on the civilian or on the commercial side or whether it's on the government side, we're gonna start seeing some people trying to target to collect that information or trying to get that free money. 
I was told that you could never stop a determined hacker, that it was impossible, and yet I was at the, the CES show earlier this year in Las Vegas, and I talked with three different technologists who assured me that a cyber-proof, they didn't say hack-proof, they said that the cyber-proof car is right around the corner and we've got this solved. I'd like to hear what you guys have to say. So at a long enough timeline, the chance of being attacked on a static system is 100% successfully attacked. The question is, what is the time frame and what is the velocity of change? As long as you continue to evolve your defenses, you change the base system, and you engage in, in uh, intelligence efforts on what other people are doing, you can stay ahead of it, but that's an active response. Just putting a product out there and hoping that it will never be attacked successfully is uh, something I completely disagree with. Yeah, and I'll add, I mean, cyber-proof, cyber I would not ever use that word. Um, I would say a, a vehicle with a, an appropriate cybersecurity posture, whether we're talking about an automotive vehicle or a military vehicle, um, an, an appropriate cybersecurity posture, and that's a real solid defense and depth strategy implemented on that vehicle. The ability to detect and monitor, like you said, if something is happening in that environment, I want to know what's happening in that environment, and then I got to be able to respond. So the thing is, and, and you said it, you know, the managing vulnerabilities in the life of a vehicle, it's an active process. Can't put it out there and leave it. I really have to know what's happening in that environment, and then continue to upgrade the defenses on that, or modify the defenses, patch vulnerabilities as they're detected. What they were telling me so much was that you, they weren't saying you could not prevent someone from getting in. They were saying once they're in, you could make sure that they couldn't do any damage or do anything wrong or bad. It's a, it's a challenging techni technological <laughs> feat right there. But, but absolutely, I mean, that's the idea, right? The idea is once you detect that somebody's in, you may be in an active process of um, stopping them or changing the posture of that vehicle. But really, yeah, the, the, the long-term idea is really how do I do real-time intrusion prevention? So now I know they're in, and I prevent them from actually doing anything inside the vehicle. And I think that's what they're referring absolutely. to. Absolutely. And that's, a, a, again, technological feat for sure, but absolutely something that uh, the best part about this is you get entrepreneurs, you get the best of the industry together, and you start talking about these challenges, and they're solvable. Mm. Um, but they're going to take time. Yeah. Tom, uh, we're here with uh, the National Defense Industry Association talking about how they collaborate with the automotive industry. What do you think of, are these two industries working together well when it comes to cybersecurity? Well, I don't think I'm necessarily the person to ask on how well they work together. Uh, I, I can tell you my experience both as a field supervisor and in my liaison position, you're definitely seeing a little bit more interaction and I would say quite a bit more interaction between the government and private industry and, and I think it it's required, it's a necessity. Uh, I think the Bureau's always brought something to bear as far as we see what the adversaries are doing across the spectrum, whether it's from the, the lowly criminals to the, the higher in nation state. And, and our goal has always been to engage with the private sector and the defense both as far as to try to, try to share what the adversaries' capabilities are, what they're after, to get them to understand that you know, it's, it's not just the cyber vector they have to worry about, it, it's going to be the human, it's going to be the joint you know, ventures that are going on in a global marketplace. There's a lot of threats and vulnerabilities, and our goal is usually, obviously, to, to make sure everybody's aware of, of what those vulnerabilities are and those consequences are of, of doing whatever the activity they're doing and to try to help them bake some security into their product. Uh, we, we, don't, we can't force that change. We can just try to influence by making that awareness. And how, how do you approach corporations, especially, in, in getting them ahead of the curve here? You know, so that you're, they're not coming to you once they've been attacked. Do, do you have a proactive program that you suggest, or practices that you suggest business should follow? 
And across every field office, so 56 field offices that the FBI has across the United States, legal attaches around the world, uh, you know, within every field office, you have an InfraGuard chapter, which is our, our private partnership that we have with you know, industry. You have the strategic partnership program, which is more focused on counterintelligence. Uh, but we have a collaborative relationship there internally that when we go out and we start interacting with companies. Uh, you know, recently we've held you know, health sector uh, briefings and financial sector briefings that when, when we've realized that it's, we're, we're spending too much time going to the individual companies as, as we identify they're being a victim, we want to go to the whole community. You know, we want to release public information as far as that's out there. We do cor you know, coordinate through DHS to release some publicly information that's there to kind of even increase the public awareness. You know, obviously some of the bigger indictments that we've done, you know, you get the press release as far as on what's out there, but really when it comes to working with industry, a lot of it's that proactive sharing. It's going out and making an effort to work with the companies and the corporations in your area of responsibility to get them to understand what the vulnerabilities and consequences are and to develop that relationship so that when they see something, even that small anomaly, they're, they're willing to just pick up the phone and call. Uh, you know, that's what we're there for. Just pick up the phone, give us a call, reach out to us. We'll be able to help you out and be able to say, you know what, we'll be there in, in the next 15 minutes. It's probably something severe. Let's start kind of working together. Um, our other goal really is we try, to, we try to prevent any further victimization when somebody comes to us as a victim. We try to come in with, with as light of a touch as we can. We don't want to come in with a legal process. When we come in with that search warrant, it's a, it's a, whole, different, it's a whole different scenario. Um, but for us, most of it's really trying to, trying to make sure that they can get back to being whole. They can get back to being a profitable company and conducting their business but also being able to collect the intelligence and the, the evidence that we need to pursue our investigations. Mm -hmm. Carl, what's your assessment of how the defense and automotive industries are collaborating on this? Uh, so I think there is some collaboration. Um, I'd like to see each of them learn a couple things from each other. Uh, what I'd like to see is a tech transfer program from the military to, uh, to automotive that includes uh, threat intelligence feeds as well as some sensor information. I think that would accelerate and, and aid, auto, aid the automotive industry. Um, on the defense side, I think uh, the courage of inviting in hackers, uh, taking an honest assessment of yourself, putting a welcome mat out is, uh, is a critical thing to, self, to create self-awareness and produce better systems, uh, as well as uh, you know, cost consciousness. So there, there is some interaction, but I, I think that as, uh, as we move forward, it'll be better um, and, and, uh, and deeper. It's the beginning industry, and so I think we're at about the appropriate level, but if we stay where we are, we're, we're missing out on opportunities. So opportunity to grow in this. Opportunities right? to grow. Jeff, you're at General Motors. What's your assessment? Do you guys work with the defense industry and, and try to learn from them or share what you know? Yes, absolutely. So from our perspective, I can talk about a lot of collaborations that we have, and um, we've had a chance to collaborate with the defense industry, the, the aerospace industry. Um, and we, we learn a lot, right? I mean, from the defense industry, you talk about, you know, kind of military-grade cybersecurity. I mean, that's a, that's a big thing, right? And uh, not every car can have military-grade cybersecurity or military-grade, you know, redundant systems, right? I mean, my Chevy Cruze would be the size of a Suburban and cost a couple hundred thousand dollars if that was the case. But at the same time, what we can learn from a technical solutions from each other, I think, is really important. And I think, and I think we bring uh, you know something to those discussions as well. You know, we we focus a lot on incident response. You know, we have a we have a board level approach at General Motors, and you can't push cybersecurity from the bottom up. It's a top down approach, right? 
And I think a lot of the defense contractors, there's a lot of different things that are going on in their environment that um, there's a lot of conflicts. There's a lot of technical conflicts and working with the government. There's a lot of things and priorities that are happening. And really, if you aren't having cybersecurity as a boardroom discussion and, and forming an organization that's really got an independent voice within the, the overall organization, but applying the right technical controls and organizational capability, I don't think you're going to be successful. So I think there's give and take from both sides. And, and, and Carl, to your perspective on the responsible disclosure or coordinated disclosure, um, you know, that's a really important activity that traditionally in a defense contractor, you may not have a lot of comfort doing it. I'll just say at General Motors, that was very difficult for us to put that out there. And explain but, that uh, a little bit. Yeah. Responsible disclosure. Yeah, yeah. So, and I probably call it more coordinated disclosure than responsible disclosure or a bug bounty program. I mean, really what that is, and Carl described it great, it's putting a welcome mat out to researchers. So, Researchers want You're calling to do them researchers. Work. Some of us might call them hackers. Exactly. I mean, you, and you can call them, you know, they're white hat hackers. And, and sometimes they might be a little bit gray hat. You know, they aren't so black hat, but they might be gray hat a little bit. And, um, but at the same time, really what they want to do is they want to be heard. They may want notoriety. They want credit. Um, they may want a job quite frankly, or they may want to get paid for their services. And I can say from our interactions with the research community, all the above are true and all of the above are beneficial. And really uh, the reward versus the risk, the reward is great to get that information about your environment. And so essentially, if I can paraphrase it, you're inviting hackers to attack you, but then working with them on what they were able to uncover. That's right. Understand what they found, um, take it to the next level, work with our internal teams to understand it, and then remediate. Um, you know, I, I would rather have that um, interaction occur than an interaction where a criminalist um, decides to try to find a vulnerability in our environment and then launch that against our products. We're talking about individual companies and, and cars, and, and Tom, maybe we'll come to you on this. How do you protect a supply chain? Because there are hundreds if not thousands of components and suppliers that are that any company has to deal with. Any ideas from the FBI standpoint of, of it, how you handle that? It's a lot of outreach. Uh, it's a lot of miles on the vehicle trying to you know schedule time with these companies, these organizations. But it's also leveraging some of the different information sharing analysis centers, the ISACs that are out there, because some of them invite some of those different uh, you know supply chain aspects into it. Uh, and, and start working with some of those and making sure that when we do a public announcement that we're making sure that we're including that part of the audience that we're not forgetting about them. Uh, we also try to make sure that we work with even the main manufacturers to recognize the vulnerability that could occur at that supply chain level. That while they think that it's a, it's a very small part of the relationship or you know, even though it's extremely important, there's an, there's an extreme vulnerability that's right there that they have to worry about and that we want the, the main manufacturer to worry about as far as the, the exposure to that that tends to kind of lend them into wanting to include those suppliers into that relationship and into that notification and into those meetings because they start realizing that the vulnerability came via the trusted relationship they have with that supplier or that you know, material supplier. That all of a sudden now they're trying to work with, trying to up that security posture of that supplier. So that, that tends to be one of those other, other vectors that we're able to use to, to get in front of some of the, all the mom and pops that are out there and all the little smaller companies that are out there. Carl, it sounds like there's a lot of layers to this onion because you may just develop a good level of trust with your tier one supplier, but it has suppliers and that has suppliers. So yeah. how, do you, how do you make sure that all the componentry, the electronics and the software going in a car is safe? So it's very hard. Uh, first off, we used to call it a long time ago, uh, attacking through the extra net. That's no longer the term. But what you do is you find what the business relationships are, the dependencies are, and don't go to uh, a, uh, you know, a hard target so specifically, look at the target hack. 
Uh, they went through, I think it was an HVAC supplier. Um, you, you find someone who has a trust relationship, exploit that, and then move into the, 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 the target or the main, the main thing that you want to go after. Uh, with cars, it's going to be the same way. And so one of the things I learned from the defense community, I used to work for Lockheed Martin and build uh, um, systems. We had, uh, as an LSI, lead system integrator, we had a very detailed process of working specifically with all of our component suppliers, going through code reviews, having detailed knowledge of not only what the capabilities were, but how it would be in place in the system and how the entire data and communication flow would happen. Uh, if you employ that method, it makes things harder. It's a mitigating strategy. It is more costly and time consuming. Uh, but it is a way to proactively engage your supply base, uh, make sure they're part of the comprehensive solution and it's well integrated mm -hmm. and more secure. Jeff, Tom uh, raised the issue of an ISAC, mm -hmm. which I believe I've got this right, Information Sharing and Assessment Center. Analysis Center. Uh, analysis close. Center, yep. okay. Same, same word. Same word yep, almost. Yep. Uh, and there's an automotive ISAC That's now, correct. and I believe GM's part of that. Uh, explain a little bit of the progress that you're making there. No, thank you. Yes, yeah, so I have the great opportunity and pleasure of sitting as the vice chairman of that organization. And uh, we've grown a lot over the past year and a half or under a year and a half. It's just over a year at this point. So um, uh, the auto ISAC is really, and it's set up, if, if, if we don't know what an ISAC is, we can explain that for sure. Um, uh, it's the ability for really competing organizations in a non-competing fashion to share threat and vulnerability information with each other. And really the analysis, the A part of that is really important because just sharing vulnerability information doesn't really give anybody the opportunity to resolve something. So if I find something in my environment, I can share what it is or I can share what it is, how I found it and how I may have remediated it. And then it takes every other competing organization from a normal competition um, phase out there. Um, but in this environment, in a non-competing environment, the ability to go off and address that very quickly so that their customers won't see the same possible vulnerability. The other thing that we've seen in the auto ISAC, we've taken on the, the writing of best practices. We talk about supply chain security. I'll take it back to even that. Um, Supply chain security in the defense industry is a very interesting topic, right? I mean, you could talk about how I have to control every aspect of hardware and software throughout the entire supply chain, and then even once the vehicle, we'll say, I call it a vehicle, is created, what do I do at that point to really control everything to the nth degree, right? Because these are high, high value, um, high, high visibility targets. In the automotive environment, it might be a little bit different. You know, we might want to make sure that 90% of the most egregious things might be covered, right? From how do I make sure the software that I securely developed and tested is actually what I'm building in the car and then put measures in place to if I update that software, I can't update it unless I'm the one updating it. It can't be updated otherwise. So um, I think, you know, from a best practice perspective, this is a great thing because what happens is all these people come together in the ISAC. They learn from each other. It's the best of all organizations. You create all these, and then in the end, everybody signs up to meet them. So it just kind of raises the bar collectively within a, an industry around um, how cybersecurity is being addressed. Yeah, and, and even to kind of expand on that, it's one of those that even though the FBI does have, have some involvement with the ISACs, it's an invitation. We, can't, we don't force our way into it, but I'd be remiss not to even mention we're not the only player in this game as far as trying to work with the community and the public. You know, we have our task forces that are out there that have state, local law enforcement, our other federal partners that are out there. So they have trusted relationships. They have established relationships. You know, you look at some of the financial sector that's out there that, you know, Secret Service tends to have a strong and stronger involvement in. We leverage some of those relationships to then start trying to get some of the messages out. You know, we have a state police task force officer that sits with, you know, the Detroit FBI field office for cyber matters only. We're able to use 
what he does within the state of Michigan and some of the efforts that are being done by the state of Michigan. And then all of our other field offices have those. We have our local police officers uh, that sit on that same task force as well that we're able to leverage even some of those local relationships that they have. Um, and that helps us get our message that's out there to everybody in the community. Carl, how does uh, the U.S. auto industry and even the state of Michigan stack up against what's going on in the world? How would you rate the effort going on in the U.S.? Uh, I think the U.S. is first rate. Um, there is nothing, I don't think anyone in the world is doing that we aren't doing at least equivalently. Uh, whether it's uh, autonomous trucks, the same month that Europe did its autonomous truck trial, uh, MDOT, Michigan Department of Transportation, and TARDIC had a, a heavy truck uh, platooning, you know, uh, autonomous platooning exercise on I-69. Within the automotive community, uh, our cars are as resilient and as uh, well defended as any in the world, and better than most. Jeff, uh, General Motors, of course, is uh, based in the United States, but mm -hmm. it's a global company. Mm -hmm. How would you stack the U.S. industry up against uh, what's going on in the rest of the world? I think we do a great job in this in this uh, environment. I think you know we have the auto ISACs, the ISACs themselves, you know, government protection around information sharing, really raising the bar really quickly. Lots of activities going on from um, talent. So talent is very difficult. You talk about the talent challenges the universities, the outreach of the universities, the work between um, you know, government, um, private sector, and the universities to create this talent pool um, is great. And then the entrepreneurs. I mean, this is where I think we, strive, or we, we, we flourish in this country, is you know, when you have a cybersecurity challenge, the next thing that happens after researchers is entrepreneurs. And that's not a bad thing. We talk about the levels of the attackers. Entrepreneurs aren't an attacker. They provide solutions. Not all, not all solutions are great. Not all solutions can just be added to a system. But really, that entrepreneurial spirit is really what drives, I think, the industry forward here. Good. Tom, we're down to the very end. I need a quick uh, response from you, too. How does the U.S. stack up? My opinion, I think the best, uh, but you know that that's my opinion. Uh, it, it's one of those. I think we've got a lot of great relationships that are out there. We share a lot of great information. Uh, it, it's we're always trying to encourage people come to us before it's too late. Come to us before it's too big. Uh, we like to get involved a little bit earlier in the process of anything that's out there, and and along the same line for us, it's that talent. You know, we're, we're always looking for that talent, and we're looking for the people to come in and join the FBI workforce. Well, with that, we're going to have to wrap this up. I want to thank all three of you for taking the time today. Fascinating topic. I'm sure we can come back here again next year and have an equally good discussion because this is not going away. Well, thank you. Well, good. With that, we're wrapping it up. I want to thank all of you for having tuned in. Underwriting for the production of AutoLine this week has been provided by the Michigan chapter of NDIA. 